Welcome back, comic book fans of all ages. This is episode number five of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and it's time to look at my picks for the top five books from DC Comics this week and every week. I think without any further ado, we should just jump right in and get started. My first selection is going to be high level number three. Let's start with what's happening. Two characters, 13 and Minnow, are in the Outlands trying to survive. Minnow, a girl who has the ability to open doors and read technology, is working with 13, a young woman who has made a career buying, selling, and finding any way she can to make enough money to survive in this place that they call the Outlands. And now she's on the run with Minnow, having made a decision that prevents her from returning to her home and also trying to figure out how she and Minnow can survive. But when Minnow opens a storage surplus of weapons hidden beneath the ground, they discover not only the weapons, but an LC-70, which looks like a modern cross between a Star Wars cruiser or speed cycle, and the motorcycle from Akira. Now it hovers, and there's a great line when Minnow says, it doesn't even have wheels, to which 13 then replies, it doesn't need wheels. Anyone who's a Back to the Future fan will, of course, enjoy that reference to the ending of Back to the Future, and, of course, the way that it sets up that that anticipation for what's coming next. Now, why I picked it? I heard some good things from reviewers, and had read some other reviews in other publications, but among the staff of DC Comics News, there was also a lot of great interest. The cover had a pull quote that also caught my attention immediately, and raised the stakes and offered up a challenge, in which it suggested that not only was the art amazing, but that the quality of world building was something that really generated this sort of response from the reviewer. Now, on a side note, I work on a game, and as an editor, and when I've done writing, I know how difficult it can be to make world building work, and make it work well, and how when it doesn't work, it can feel really clunky, and much more like a glossary. I wanted to see how seamless this attempt from high level could be, and I like the idea that they offered up that challenge on the cover for me to consider. Moving right into my favorite parts, starting with the story, The world building is no joke. The issue gives a simple recap in dialogue that reveals the names of the characters, where they are, what they need, and what the stakes are on the first page. Also, elements about the world that they're experiencing and seeing are naturally offered up as questions from a curious child. Minnow is wanted by an elite force called the Black Helix from High Level. High Level is where everyone wants to be. And actually on the first page, there's another great world-building moment with an ad that's basically showing on a video or a streaming service, describing how outside of high-level war, poverty, and drought exist and are always a danger and a threat. But inside high-level, you can always get work and maybe an extra shift from the boss if you point out how excited you are and willing to put in more time. Which makes it sound a little bit less like a paradise and more like a caste system of worker bees and those who they support. High level is a place that is better by comparison, but only if you keep working hard. And there is little to no reference about what happens if you lose your job or can't work. I also like the way that the images tell a lot of the storytelling here, and I feel that that falls more on the storytelling side, but I'm happy to let it blend into the favorites of the images. You make your pick. The first one that comes to mind is, while on the LC-70, Minnow and 13 see a border wall, and nearby is a sign that says it entering the border, leaving the border, border closed for Canada. And scrawled across the wall is a phrase that says that basically borders are death sentences. And it's written in blood red, which I think is meant to imply blood. And it leads to this great discussion with 13 mentioning that walls uh, suggest that people inside have demons. 
and minnows shouldn't worry about things like demons because they're not monsters, but more like the voices in your head that tell you to be afraid. And that's a really nice development and a great discussion that follows, which I enjoyed a lot. And also the visual experience of running across the, I hope I'm saying this right, the Yukudia or Yukudia, which Ookburgers or Yukburgers are made from, which are genetically modified animals. They look maybe like tall sheep or llama. They've got two horns that fork into one and a hump like a camel. And 13 explains that they must be genetically modified to be able to survive out here. The intention is to make them appear genetically modified. And I like the way that this is set up. I like that there are so many things about it that seem familiar from other creatures and yet together feels unnatural. Which then leads to a nice development in the story because Minnow points out that she is genetically modified, or at least that's what she overheard someone saying. Later, when they arrive at the Nibby outpost to exchange for gear, Minnow points out weird metal trees, and 13 explains that they are super trees, bioelectric, and they generate electricity through photosynthesis. And I think this really sets up some nice opportunities to reveal where the wants and needs exist on this world and how they make up the decision-making process for different characters. Also, some great moments when they finally get the chance to exchange their weapons they've taken for supplies and they're gearing up. Minnow picks out this weird kid's cap that looks kind of like a raccoon cap, but it looks like it was also maybe the face or head of a cute little cat animal. And 13 thinks it's ridiculous, but then, of course, relents when Minnow wants it. And another nice moment when they're sitting down and eating. And after a little bit of polite conversation, Minnow just simply looks up at 13 and says, Why is your name a number? To which 13 replies, Why is your name a fish? And these are just some really nice bonding moments for the two of them to enjoy and experience together. And I felt it was really well done. And I thought it was a really nice opportunity that could be explored, was explored lightly, and then moved away from, so that we always have a chance to come back to it and enjoy the continuing of these bonding and building moments. Favorites for the art side starts out with that great image of the wall as they are approaching the border, and the use of the border wall with the borders are sentences in blood-red letters that are at least 10, if not 20 feet tall. And this sort of like great message that's being implied there uh, there was a joke um, so often used for different states that you would arrive and the state would say, welcome to whichever state you're in. And then graffiti below, it would say, now get out. And that was definitely the impression that I got this sort of, this wall's here, you can go through, but, you know, there's a lot of strife on either side. Second one would have to be the uh, opening panel on one page as we're looking down at the approach of Minnow and 13 on the LC-70 as they come closer or draw closer to the Nibby outpost. And from looking down, you can get a sense of their approach from the viewpoint of the guards and also sort of the layout of the Nibby post and how everything looks and exists there. And of course the guards, one of whom is shirtless, wearing a cap and has bands on his hands and carrying some kind of a a weapon, another electrical device, and I swear he looks straight out of Mad Max. Pick your movie. Uh, Thunderdome or Fury Road. And on my third favorite art moment, a shot of a beaten up 13 on her back. She's been in a fight. It's been bad for her. And while she's laying there recovering, she's clearly being approached by curious figures and they're on stilts, and you can only see their shadowy silhouettes, and there's two in the foreground, and then two more further on in the background. And it's just this really nice shot. And also you've got her assistant, EZ, I'm pretty sure is his name, it's capital E and Z, so that's what I'm going with. And trying to, you know, do its best to help her in some way. Now that doesn't mean this is a perfect story, and of course, there's always going to be some least favorite parts, because it just happens haven't come across a perfect one yet. I could. Least favorite parts for the story on this one, the introduction of someone 13's past when they're at the Nibby outpost and exchanging traits. It's it's a little bit 
frustrating in that I understand that she was working with people at the place that she left and that one of them's going to take it like the deal was bad. But it feels a little bit false and it rings true later when 13 and Minnow are knocked unconscious by uh, this person from 13's past who realizes the value of Minnow, collects her, and then has her other thugs beat up 13 and leave her for dead in the Shadowlands in that final image I was just talking about, which is a beautiful image, but the setup to it, story-wise, just wasn't one of my favorite parts. Now, on the art side, the guard at the entrance to the Nibby outpost wears a black top with holes cut out to expose her torso, and, I mean, essentially, her breasts are exposed, her nipples are covered with masking or painter's tape, and it just felt a little forced, like a little gratuitous. I get the character is not repressed and very confident and, you know, in charge. And maybe it's, you know, alluding to some other interest or preference or identity. But it, it felt like, again, the gratuity, it, it just felt like there was so much there that I thought to myself, you know, it could have been just as uncomfortable or disconcerting and maybe even establishing of identity without that. But perhaps down the line we'll get a chance for the character to explain themselves in their own words, and that might lead to a deeper understanding of this choice. For the moment, on first impression, all I can think of is if I showed this to anyone who I know who's got a kid under a certain age, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack. Granted, with the swearing, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack anyways. This is a mature title. But even for a mature one, for some reason I just sort of looked at it and went, okay, I'm not sure why I'm supposed to be uh, interested in this, but mostly I just find myself asking why, and no one's there to give me a reason, and certainly not the character. Uh, also, one other little art piece that didn't work so great for me, page 19, a splash page of the cage match while 13 and her former associate are having a conversation, felt unnecessary, and while I understand that it was trying to set up this idea that this is where the attention of things is, but the attention for the reader in the story is going to be focused on this conversation. It it felt unnecessary, and I thought it could have been done with a greater detail focus on them, with this in the um, least focused perspective. But overall, it was a small note, and it was just a, a little thing that I stopped and said, huh, I'm not sure why this is necessary, but... For some reason it is, and, and maybe it'll be revealed later. But at the moment, it seemed to pull away from the larger story, which was this discussion about 13's past and the damage it caused to those who she left behind. Overall, I thought this was a strong book that made a strange future world come alive. And I really appreciated the world-building aspects that were described and the way that they were developed in the story. My only detractions on art were the moments of sharp deal com detail compared with less, and that may have been intentional. Um, I thought they set up a lot of great potential nicely, and it is being revealed just how much there is to learn about the worlds inside and outside of high level. My score for this one was a number four, and your score is one I'm still waiting to hear. Find us, contact us on social media, and let me, let DC Comics News, know what you're thinking. For the second book on the spinner rack... I'm going with damage number 16, the final issue on this run, by a character who, I'll have to confirm, might have been created for the New Age of Heroes by Robert Venditti. I'm curious to hear what you think. Let's get to what's happening. Congo Bill and Ethan Avery are strung up in chains. Ethan is damaged. Congo Bill can trade places with a giant creature called the Golden Gorilla who's actually been around for quite some time and has a very interesting and lengthy history in comic book continuity. Now, it's nice to see him return to work and to work with damage on Monster Rock as part of his maturing and growth process. But they're in a bad place because Echidna, the Greek creature, goddess, entity, has chained them up and left them dangling over a pit of lava. Now, Echidna is changing the monsters that are kept on Monster Rock into hybrids so she can control them, and Bill and Ethan have been trying to stop her. Clearly, she didn't like that, and that has led to their current predicament. Why I picked it 
Damage is one of those first books that I began reading for DC Comics News regularly. My first introduction to the New Age of Heroes and other characters that populate it, like another title, The Silencer, that I would also begin reviewing for a time. I was initially curious because he was a character who I remember having the same name as a character in the 90s, called Damage. But that Damage seemed like a, you know, kind of slacker ripoff who didn't really understand what happened. And I didn't read enough of the issue to know. So, for me, this was a first introduction. And I jumped in right around issue number four. I like that the, uh, since we're on the topic of world building, that the world building for him included the introduction of various parts of the DC universe. Um, we had characters with well-known names like Poison Ivy and Swamp Thing making appearances. Later, one of my favorite was the Unknown Soldier. And then, uh, while I was uh, on a hiatus from reviewing, I was able to keep up just a bit with the issues and learned about how Damage had clashes with Batman and the Justice League, and this led to his eventual banishment to Monster Rock. So I thought reviewing this final issue would be a nice way to see what position they leave the new age of heroes and Damage, and also, personally, just to wrap up a character who I, for the most part, started out early with and now get a chance to see the ending of his story. Let's move right into my favorite parts. In the story, we get to see Damage mature and realize what is important is not just smashing and lashing out, but doing things for others. Whether it's saving Bill after Ethan changes into Damage because Echidna simply does not know what he is and what he's capable of and thinks he's just Congo Bill's assistant, or when Damage and Congo Bill have the chance to change the monsters back and Ethan realizes that these monsters were lashing out just because of what they were. What's great is that this is something that Congo Bill needs and has been trying to get Ethan to understand. That because he and Ethan can be aware, because of their dual identities and their relationship with the monsters, creatures that they are joined with, they should be able to use this knowledge and awareness to look after the monsters and be there for them, and also to use the power they've been given responsibly and not just as something that they can lash out indiscriminately without understanding the cause and effect of that. Really enjoyed that, and hopefully, in my belief, it sets up this character for the chance to either start on a new journey somewhere else or to join a new cast of characters on a team or as part of another story with that maturity in place and the ability to develop and grow from there. And given my history with Damage, I'm really excited to see him have this sort of uh, development, growth, maturity, and potential. On the art side, man, they really pull out all the spots for this issue. Uh, starting with page 7, when Ethan makes the decision to change into damage, and it's to grab Congo Bill's ring, which is his connection to Golden Gorilla. Uh, Echidna's thrown it into the lava so she can destroy that connection, and Ethan realizes he can change into damage, and that when he does, he can get them both free. When he does, it's this huge splash page of damage falling into the lava, you know, and this look of not knowing what's going to happen if he'll survive, and the little clock counter for his one-hour counter that begins right at this moment. It's just a really nice splash page. Really enjoyed the way it was displayed there and all the tension that goes with it. Second art thing that I really enjoyed was when damage gets out from that lava trap area and is fighting Echidna's monsters. And then there's the arrival of Golden Gorilla on his own splash page with this big smile and looking radiant, red sky behind him. And there's a, just a, a really nice sense of, you know, for me at least, the DC continuity, the DC history, the sense of this character, and all the ways that he existed before, and now to be told uh, something of a larger, more epic scale. Maybe not something he was ever intended for originally or, you know, considered for, but used in this way at the hands of skilled writers and artists. Uh, it's really something that I enjoy, and it's great to see him shine in this moment. Third favorite moment? Right after Golden Gorilla joins, he and Damage begin smashing monsters, and there's this great panel of, like, Damage smashing left, Gorilla smashing right, or maybe it's vice versa. And then underneath it, they both smash at the same time on a monster. And Echidna just, you know, no! And <laughs> really enjoyed the way they the way they set that up. 
And for my fourth favorite art part, uh, Ethan is given the boat by Congo Bill to leave. It's the ending of the the book. You know, no real spoiler here. They uh, they get the chance to defeat Echidna and move forward. And when Ethan is given the boat, the last page is just a series of panels showing the boat on the ocean. And as it moves farther away, the sun is setting, blue waters, the flash of a monster's tail, sea serpents sort of cresting in one, and the gradually receding black silhouette of the sailboat that is carrying Ethan. And in the last two panels, it's seen, and then the last one, it's gone, with only the small letterbox in the bottom right corner saying, End. And I thought it was a really nice, touching homage and send-off for a character who reached his final issue with that sort of growth and maturity that I was really proud of, and also with the unplanned future waiting ahead for him. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't some problems that I had. On my least favorite side of the story, this echoes my uh, comments about Hawkman from Hawkman 11 from last episode of The Spinner Rack. And it's the James Bond villain curse, which is when Echidna leaves Bill and Ethan alive dangling over the lava. If she was really a terrible villain, she would kill them in order to take control of Gorilla, separate their connection, take the ring in the process, and get rid of them both. But that's really it. No other issues for me. And overall, I get it. A big challenge. It's just not something that really worked for me the way I wanted it to. On the art side, little things popped up, like on page 18 and 19, where the details seemed to be lost in the moments during the transformation. And I did not like the look of this echidna, is really my only other issue. I like the Justice League Europe version, back when it was her uh, working out a deal with Wonder Woman, and also the role that was played by Metamorpho in that story. I like the sense of history, the sense of the darkness, the sense of, of fear that came with it. There was a greater amount of lightheartedness to this storytelling, and Echidna felt a little cartoony, um, a little mishmash, and overall, uh, it wasn't my favorite representation. When it comes to my final score, though, I thought this wrapped up the story nicely, and it closed a great chapter on a character who I had a shared history with while I was reviewing him for DC Comics News. I went ahead and dropped it a four. Your score might be different, but I'm not going to know until you tag me and or DC Comics News on social media and tell us. My third choice for the DC Comics News spinner rack is Naomi number four. Now, what's happening has just been so much, and I just jumped on at issue number three way back when I was doing this for my first spinner rack. Superman came to Naomi's town, and it changed her life. And it set her on this sort of curiosity about what happened and who saw what. And in the process, she meets this hulking figure named D, who is a mechanic in a shop. And after a few false clues or assumptions on her part, she approaches him one night and learns that he's not her father, but that he is an alien stranded on this planet. And that's when her mom shows up, smacks Dee around, and then drags her off to talk with Dad, who then explains that there's a lot about her history that they need to tell her about. And then he drives her out to a secret place, and in this cavernous area it reveals that he has a space suit and a spaceship. And that's where it picks up, the beginning of issue number four, where we get a chance to see Naomi's reaction and for her dad to tell the story of just how it is that he and Naomi's mom came to be here, and also how it is that they know her and yet don't know as much about her as she wishes they did. More on that in a bit. Why I picked it. The great thing about this story is something I noticed in issue number three and has continued in issue number four. Actually, I've since honestly gone back and read this from issue number one and all the way through. What I love is that every opportunity to go a classic route or to take a traditional path is foiled by changes to the plan and a decision to not go the easy route. 
By doing so, this story continues to defy the expectations, and it challenges the assumptions that are made by a character Naomi, who's very endearing and engaging and enjoyable. And it allows us to also experience that confusion when what she thinks is happening, and what we might also believe, assume, or think is happening, isn't actually happening, and how that changes what the story's meaning holds for us. I also like that this creates a more engaging storyline, and it furthers a mystery, because one of the great things about this story so far has been, what is the answer to all the questions? What is the mystery behind Naomi? And that moves really nicely into my favorite parts of this, because it has to do with the story. The man and woman that Naomi calls mom and dad are actually not her blood relatives. Dad, at the end of last issue, at the beginning of this one, is wearing a spacesuit that is like a Rand suit and was confusing at the last issue. Um, he's kind of chubby, and the suit looks a little disheveled while he's wearing it. And at first, I wasn't sure if it was a Rand outfit that he was wearing at the end of last issue. And I didn't want to go ahead and just make that claim. And it's not until this year that it's actually confirmed by him that he is wearing a Rand spacesuit. And my biggest problem is really just that a Rand spacesuit looks like a common 60s spacesuit that you see in numerous comic styles, especially with the fin on top and the jetpack. And I didn't want to say that last time because it wasn't clear and I wasn't trying to set up any more confusion about this issue than is necessary. Because the last thing I need to do is come back on and say, hey, I really didn't know what I was talking about. Now this story is about the dads from Rand. But now that this has all been established, the father is from Rand. He was an elite fighter, similar to D, interestingly enough. And after many dangerous missions, he was actually given a cake job, which is to go to the planet Earth and to observe this... Thanagarian, D, and make sure that whatever happens was reported back to high command. Of course, Dad shows up and immediately falls in love with Mom with her green hair and pierced nose, and they decide that they're going to have a future there, and he doesn't want to leave, and he keeps waiting for the intergalactic call, which never comes. But this doesn't mean that everything's easy for them. Turns out they can't have kids, they're not compatible, and they can't really do adoption because Dad simply doesn't have an established history in any adoption agency worth its salt will uncover just what a fraud he is in moments. Things take a turn in their personal lives when this interstellar energy alert brings Dee and Naomi's dad to a football field at the high school where a group of attackers arrive and kill a woman and the bundle she's carrying is thrown and Naomi's dad catches it, only to reveal that inside is little Naomi. Now, an object that was found with Naomi, and stored in the spaceship with the blanket, responds and lights up when Naomi touches it. And when she does, there's this great moment on the pattern of the object, which is reflected in her eyes. And she says, Mom? Dad? It's a great ending that sets up everything that hopefully is going to be coming next, in issue number five. I also love the uh, honest dialogue. When dad reveals who he is, there's a beat or two, a panel or two of non-reaction or casual calm reaction from Naomi. And then when she finally freaks out and says, dad, what the hell? His great response of, ah, there she is. Let's us know that they have this relationship where he knows who she really is and how she really is. And he's waiting for her to react honestly and openly instead of just trying to be so calm and composed all the time. It also drives it home when Dad starts talking about how he never had a life like this and concerns to worry about, like a daughter or a family, and how those became his precedent and nothing else was important to him. And then lastly, I like the way that Dad tries to be cool when he says, yeah, so I took that object to a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy at Star Labs, and it must have been on the down low. And I swear, Naomi must be laughing inside about how cool he thinks he sounds, and how uncool he really sounds. Favorite parts for the art? Just beautiful stuff all around. Whether it's great lighting and shadows with Dad and Naomi and the ship and the caverns and this mix of orange and reds and also a little bit of purple. And then also great images of the intergalactic fight scenes, the battles that her father was a part of. And of course, um, the one moment that really sticks out for me the most 
and there's no reason to say of course unless you've read it, but for me it's an of course, which is that glimmering ball, which is the introduction of the appearance of the attackers at the football field. I love the way it starts small, grows, and then suddenly is so huge, and yet at the same time doesn't appear to have lost any of its great detail. It's a really beautiful moment that I enjoyed. Now, as much as I love this book, that doesn't mean that there aren't some least favorite parts. And on the story side, what really didn't make sense is how Dad is this great fighter for Ran, and then suddenly gets a cush job watching D from Thanagar on backwater planet Earth. And so did the way the fact that no one checks on him, but somehow he and a Thanagarian are in the same place when the attackers and the fleeing person arrive, and, of course, the arrival of Naomi. It feels a little... I don't know, too convenient, too coincidental. And I feel that there might be something larger at play in this story, but without knowing anything more, it feels like a bit of a weak point. Least favorites on the art? I dare you to find a bad image. I couldn't find one. I looked through this three times. My score for this book? 4.5. Really enjoyed it. Can't wait to hear what you think. Your score is something you can tag us on social media and share with the world and with hashtag or at DC Comics News. My next choice for the spinner rack Nightwing number 59. What's happening? Dick was shot in the head, part of his skull crushed, his memories damaged, but his training, parts of it, are still complete. He knows and can remember that he was trained by the best, but he also knows like any fighter, his whole body and his whole self, and he knows that he's still a shadow of who he used to be because of everything he can't remember and all the complications that creates. It's a really difficult situation. And also, there's the development that Bloodhaven has new Nightwings who watch over the city in his place, and now he's trying to join them as a recruit. I think it's a great example of a redemption story, and because the Nightwings don't quite trust him. It's about how he has to earn that, while at the same time not quite revealing exactly who he is or who he was. Why I picked it. Nightwing is a great character, and at some point he was always considered to be the future successor of Batman. And the times when he has worn the cowl have been magical. Being shot has changed him, and not who he used to be is something he's trying to adjust to. And also, what that might mean for his future is something that not only he, but the rest of the DC Universe is watching and waiting to understand. He's also made a few changes to his life. He has the name Rick. He has a new girl named Bia. And he's trying to become a member of the group of heroes inspired by the man that he used to be. And that's where this feeling of getting back to his former self or trying to become what he was is really compelling for me. I like the way that Dan Jurgens, the writer, is telling this story. I've loved his work in DC, and I, I feel that he has a really good handle on the shape and direction of this story. Which makes it easy to move right into my favorite parts. The story opens up with Rick facing off against Malcolm Hutch for training. Grayson is in Muay Thai arm and leg wraps, and Malcolm in a black and red Nightwing outfit, because he's actually one of the Nightwings. Colors remind me a little bit also of Batman Beyond, and I like the combination and the way that Malcolm wears it. It's great fighting here. It's not only shown well, but described well by the characters. Nightwing is fast, and while he can't remember where he learned it all, he also knows that he's sometimes a little too good to be true, and that he has to dial it back when Malcolm catches on to just how stunning he can really be, and the fact that that makes it harder for him to trust Grayson. Also on the story side, I like the transition to Malcolm's narrative after the training session is over. He was a police officer, or a member of the police officer academy to become a police officer, and then became a firefighter. And on his day off, he's going to a hospital to pay respects to Walter Stapleton, a senior officer who brought Malcolm on a ride-along. And whatever occurred during that ride-along, Stapleton ended up in a coma. Now, in order to pay his respects, 
Malcolm pays a visit to the hospital. But I like that this is also something that's not well received when another member of the precinct, where Stapleton worked, named Sapienza, comes in and tries to get Malcolm out before Stapleton's daughter can arrive. But of course she does, blames Malcolm for her father. And I like this parallel to Nightwing's desire to redeem himself, and that this is something that Malcolm is going to continue to struggle with without either of them knowing about the struggles they're both facing. Third part of the story that I really enjoyed. Early mentions to an arsonist at the beginning, terrorizing the city, leads to a fire at a police precinct for the final page of the issue. And when Grayson hears the sirens, he says he has to run, which leaves her asking why. Simply because A, he's not a firefighter, and B, why does he feel responsible to go run into danger like that? Which leaves him saying to himself that with skills like his and his training, if people get hurt, he feels responsible. And four for the story, I like that this sets up a meeting between Malcolm and Grayson after we've learned about their two stories separately and how they now have to go into this fire to try and save as many as they can. Which leads to what I thought was a really great moment on the art side, the shot of Malcolm and Grayson looking down at the fire and this really beautiful image of the fire as it's consuming the building of the police precinct and the way it's got this just sort of hungry, angry, dangerous look to it. Also, I really loved the great movement during the training. It was uh, really well displayed, really well choreographed. It looked creative and inventive. And I like the way that Dick looks strong. He looks like he's still the great fighter he's always been and that that part of him really hasn't changed. And then for a third point, there's this really great shot of a sunset on page 16 and these light trails of smoke, which are the foreshadowing for the eventual fire that Malcolm and Grayson will be fighting together. Now, on the least favorite side, there are some moments. A lot of the story feels like it's set up too perfectly. Nightwing's ability to recognize when to hold back when he is fighting, um which is really impressive for a guy who doesn't have much memory left, but still able to think too far ahead. I struggle with it, but I understand it's a challenge to try and portray, and overall, done well, but there was a moment or two where I questioned how neatly it seemed to line up. Also, uh, story side, the, the issue with Malcolm's guilt and his also his super high-achieving mentality it feels like a lot. I mean almost as much as the sort of firefighter acts that he carries, which I thought he might, in homage to Grayson, carry the screamer sticks. But it's big, and he's big, so if it works for him and it's part of his identity, then I'm going to understand it. Uh, it's just a curious thing for me to note. Also on the story side, when he runs into Stapleton's daughter, on the one time he goes to the hospital to pay a visit... I understand coincidence, and yet at the same time, it felt so neatly staged that I had some questions about how it could have just happened, and would it really happen that way? Wouldn't they both expect that the other would be coming? Or that he might try and learn more about her schedule to pick a better time to come? Not sure. Maybe it's supposed to show that they're just both honestly dealing with their own grief, and it leads them to interact with each other during a time when they're both grieving. But it also creates great tension about what Grayson and Malcolm are facing when they decide to go into the fire. Um, while these are small holes, I feel like they still accomplish the goal of the overall storytelling and don't pull away too much from the story. Now on the art side, at the bottom of page 16, after that great sunset image and the smoke and the, the sirens and Dick's about to run off, they were about to kiss and Bia has this very strange look on her face. Um, it's clearly she's expecting the kiss and disappointed. Um, but the way it's drawn, it's just, uh, it looks almost like misshapen clay. And then on page 13, I don't love the image when Malcolm gets out of his seat, surprised. And the look on his face is weird when Sapienza comes in and says, hey, you got to get out of here. We can't, you know, we can't have you here when his daughter arrives the look on his face is kind of weird too and i get that they're going for shock and confusion but sometimes it borders a little bit on comedic 
And really, overall, great storytelling for Nightwing number 59. I really enjoy the redemption qualities. It's easy to give this one a 4.5. And I'm looking forward to seeing just what else will be happening with Nightwing. And how he's going to face and overcome these challenges that, for most of us, would just be insurmountable. So again, my score of 4.5. Your score... You don't have to keep it a secret, but until you share it with us, you really kind of are. And with the spinner rack slowing and slowing its spin, we have the last book, Justice League 22. Now, what's happening is just a ton of chaos. First, we've got Mitzaplik, just giant as all get out, forces all over the place trying to control him, and he's just destroying the planet. And the Legion of Doom arrive and are there to fight fire with fire by using their own fifth dimensional creature, Batmite, to fight back. Now, this conflict creates a disturbance that's felt on a dimensional vibration and on a degree that Perpetua can feel even while she is held in the headquarters of the Legion of Doom. And while she feels this shaking, she is reminded of the time she was forced to watch the world she created growing while she was a prisoner of the Source Wall which is how we get an introduction into the history of the multiverse. Now, why I picked it. Overall, this is one of those things that is on the larger scale of approach, and I really love that. Now, the writer, James Tynion, 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 I pronounced it wrong, I think, before, and I know that Steve J. Ray, who joins me on the DC Comics News podcast, has pronounced it Tynan, I think, and that's what I'm going to try and go with. I love the world creation where he begins to fill in the details of terms that are known on the surface level for a lot of people in DC, but it's never been fully explained or given a backstory for. I think this is a masterful attempt, and that by watching this through Perpetua's eyes, we get to remember through her experience how everything came to be, which leads nicely into my favorite parts of the story. We get to see the creation of the universe and an explanation through dialogue of what the original foundations were. And it begins with Perpetua's children, Alpheus, Marnovu, and Mobius. And you might, and we might know them best as World Forager, Monitor, and Anti-Monitor. Now, Alpheus was created to populate and create all it is, all creatures, all manner of things. The Monitor... Marnovu was created to observe and prevent any crises in the developing world. And Mobius, the Anti-Monitor, was created to guard all space and existence outside of this world of creation to make sure that no life forms could develop there. And by doing so, this would be in adherence to the source of power that it created them. Now, the story starts 20 billion years in the past. And I like that it flashes forward about 5 billion years to when the World Forager is hard at work and a visit from the Monitor leads to a question about whether or not the Forager created a new planet in the Prime Universe, to which the Forager responds that it did not. And that leads the Monitor to investigate this new planet and we get a chance to see the Earth as a multiverse and the multiple planets that make it up. And while it's there in Prime Universe, Monitor visits and speaks with Perpetua, who is admiring her creation and the creatures that she says will be her warriors. Now, this is where it gets interesting because Monitor, Marnovu, then proceeds to challenge Perpetua and suggests that what she has done is wrong and that she knows this and knows that she will be judged by the source of their power, a judgment that she is warned of. And this angers Perpetua. She doesn't like the way she's being spoken to, and in the final two panels, commands her new creations to turn on Marnovu and attack him. There isn't a revelation as to how he survives this or gets away, but his screams and the horror that any child would have as their mother turns against them is terrifying, and I think really creates what happens next, because it sets up this moment when Marnovu joins his brothers to find out what is the source of the power that has created them and their mother. Now, she hears this 
call from them, this reaching out, and attacks them in response. But this is interrupted by the arrival of a cosmic raptor, this really impressive multidimensional creature that scoops up Perpetua, punishes her by imprisoning her behind the source wall, and dooming her to be a witness to all the things she created, growing, evolving, without her ability to be a part of it, and only to be a silent witness as a prisoner. This affects everything, because the relationship between two of the brothers is now changed forever. The world forger is able to go back to work, constantly creating. But the creation of the source wall now blocks off all of living existence and creation from non-creation, which is all now contained behind the source wall. That area of non-creation, of anti-life, was supposed to be the domain of Mobius, and now he's lost it. It's actually taken away his kingdom. And when he tells Mar Novu, Mar Novu only responds that he knows this, and that they will soon be relocated to different places. Mar Novu to Oa, and then Mobius will be exiled to Quard, which is the place any reader of The Crisis on Infinite Earths remembers is where he is first seen in that series. The anger felt by Mobius is only furthered when Monitor Marnovu claims that this was the only way. Mobius swears that he will destroy infinite worlds in order to eventually get his hands around the neck of the Monitor and kill him. And it's here that we see the beginning of the conflict that leads to the crisis on Infinite Earths, which drastically changed the DC Universe in the 1980s. And I love that this moment of recall is encapsulated in an issue. And by the end of it, Perpetua announces that she has a plan to save everyone, which is a great setup for moving into the next issue. But also, given the details that have been revealed in this issue, it's clear that she might not be the best person for the job. And there's something to question when she says she's going to save it all. Now, on the art side, I hesitate because, really, it's hard not to love so much. There's a big splash page of the raptor arriving when it's time to imprison Perpetua, and also this great visual series with the formation of the source wall and the way it's given this cosmic establishment which we know will stand for so long in comics history, only to be broken down as it has so recently. And I love the introduction of the Earth and the Multiverse in that great scene with the Prime Universe. It's really beautiful. It feels so fresh and new, so untouched, so full of possibility. And we know all the things that will grow out of all those different Earths, but just in this moment, it's such a great time to see them all together. That doesn't mean that there are not a few of my least favorite parts. And when I move right into the story, overall, I find this is really a big challenge to try and create this narrative about the history of the DC Universe and this concept about the multiverse and the players on its stage of Perpetua, Mobius, Alpheus, and Marnovu, or World Forger, Monitor, and any monitor. And yet, there was a moment or two of doubt on the story side with the character's actions, especially when Perpetua is so angered by the questioning of her son Marnovu that she actually has her creatures turn on him and attack on page 12. And then later, a same degree of vindictiveness on the part of Monitor to join his brothers in an attempt to bring about some sort of check on the mother, some sort of way to bring her under control or to find someone who can you know, stand against her. And the way that that leads to a final judgment for her, that while for the rest of the characters seems surprising, he seems relatively unmoved, unsurprised, or unwilling to consider it to be any bigger than the event that's just occurred and not willing to think about it more beyond that. Also on the story side, Batmite is both cool and a little bit of a comedic cop-out. Um, I like the fact that if you're going to bring in something as crazy as Mitsuplik, that you bring in someone as crazy as Batmite. And I also like the corner of the universe that is not enjoyed often enough in this moment gets to play a good note. 
I'll enjoy seeing if it has a chance to follow through on the promise it's creating, but at the same time, there's a part of me that hesitates, and that's the only reason I mention it as a least favorite moment. Least favorite on the art side? I really didn't have very many issues. I did feel that there was a little bit of a sense that so much great gloriousness all the time sort of became unnecessary or mundane. And hopefully putting it down and reading it again will bring it all back to life after a little bit of time has passed. But I think one of the challenges that we're constantly dealing with cosmic characters that making them appear both amazing and cosmic and then raising that when there's something for them that's even more amazing. Um, the challenge can be, okay, is it just a lot more light and bright colors or is something really happening here? Overall, big fan of this book. Really liked what they were doing. I'm going to give it a solid four. And your score is something I won't know until you tell me. There's all the ways to do it, and we can talk about that now that we've come to the end of the DC Comics News Spinner Rack number five. I've been your host, Seth Singleton. Thank you so much for joining me for another great ride through my five top books. Can't wait to hear what yours are. And in order to do that, I'd like to remind you that DC Comics News is available on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please head over and subscribe to the podcast, then rate and review. Five stars works for me, and all the praise you want to send, I am happy to read. Also, please remember that you can follow us on social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. Just use the at DC Comics News to tag us and let us know you've got something you want us to hear. And with that, I'd like to thank you for joining me for this episode of Spinner Rack. I look forward to joining you next time around when we pull five more books and find out just what it is that makes them so great this week. And as always, read more comics. Comics.